Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast, featuring interviews with health and wellness professionals empowering you to take control of your health and happiness. Feel better, look better, and live better today by subscribing right now for new episodes every week. The Wellness Plus Podcast is brought to you by wellnessplus.tv and made possible by the generous donations of Psyche Truth Patreon supporters. Now here's your host, Certified Holistic Health Coach, Karina Rachel. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Karina Rachel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Philip Oob. He is a doctor of functional medicine and an MD, and he's here to talk to us today about the fact that there is hope for recovery from most diseases, hopefully all diseases. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. You're welcome. So can you just give us a little bit of background? So I presume that you started as a medical doctor, kind of doing the conventional or mainstream medicine. And then what uh, was it exactly that ended up bringing you to functional medicine? So it's a good question. Everybody always always asks. So yes, I was a traditional conventional medical doctor. I went through med school, went through residency, just like everyone else. Moved to Austin, which is a very holistic town in general. And when I got to Austin, I was working with another physician and he was doing some more advanced lab testing that I wasn't used to doing. Mm-hmm. And as I started doing those lab testing, I started seeing abnormal vitamin levels and inflammation markers and things that I wasn't really taught much to do about or even look at. And so after seeing enough patients that had these inflammatory and vitamin marker issues, I realized that I needed to learn more about what to do about those issues. Mm -hmm. And so it was literally kind of like pulling on the thread of a sweater, unraveling, scratching off your lottery ticket, whatever it not. As as the (laughs) the more I investigated, the more I realized there was actually more to this story. Mm -hmm. And then I had more and more patients coming to me who were taking supplements and noticing benefits or removing gluten from their diet, noticing benefits. So I think it was a healthy curiosity that allowed me to kind of stumble into functional medicine. Mm-hmm. but it wasn't something I was seeking out. It found me, and so I, I, it's one of the reasons I'm a big proponent of it and trying to kind of yell it from the rooftops because if it hadn't found me, there's no way I would have found it. And so I'm trying to put it in front of others, other physicians, so that they can learn that this is real medicine. It's not fake. It's not a salesy thing. It's not a snake oil. It's real, and it helps people. Cool. Um, so I guess maybe are there... Um maybe like differences between a functional medicine approach and a regular medical approach? Definitely. So the traditional medical approach, so to speak, is that you, you've got a symptom, you go to the doctor, you're in and out in 10, 12 minutes. I think the statistical average is 12 minutes in and out of the doctor's or the amount of time the doctor is with you. Right. And you're usually given a prescription and you're sent on your merry way. Many of those prescriptions were never studied to be used long term. They were studied to be used short term. And these prescriptions just keep getting renewed and renewed because you were put on that prescription because of a symptom and the underlying cause was never addressed. So when you try to get off of that prescription, lo, and behold, the problem is still there, so you end up taking this drug for even longer. Mm-hmm. A good example of that is the stomach acid medications that people take every day for years and years. The Nexium, the Purple Pill, the Prilosex, all those that people take every day. And the longest study, at least the one that I know of, is 12 weeks long. That's the longest the drug was studied for as far as use. Wow. And there are people that have been on it for decades. That medication reduces the amount of acid your stomach produces. I don't know if people realize this, but our stomach was designed to make acid. It's supposed to have acid. Mm -hmm. So if you take something away from your body, something else will happen. Turns out you can't absorb your nutrients. You can't absorb magnesium and calcium, other things you need. So osteoporosis happens decades later. Low magnesium happens, and you have heart arrhythmias. So there's all kinds of consequences to the drugs that we've been taking for years and decades, 
And not only that, you still never address the actual underlying problem, which is still creating inflammation. Wow. And then a lot of times what it seems like happens is that maybe they just start on one medication and then maybe either develop symptoms because of it or just coincidentally. And then you start ending up with this kind of pile on of medications, um, which to me feels very, um, you know, just there's just a lot of potential there because a the there's so many different drugs that mm-hmm. the idea that they could have studied all of the different drugs in combination with each other it would just be completely impossible and then it kind of ignores the fact that every person's body is different absolutely so you know the idea that you could have a person taking 3 or 7 or even 12 different pharmaceuticals um it's just kind of a big mystery as to how those things are going to interact or, you know, counteract each other and what, you know, overall impact it's going to have on the person taking that for such a long time. Um, Because like you said, I, you know, especially with those heartburn medications and stuff, most people are taking them for much more than 12 weeks. Absolutely. So if the longest study that's ever been done (laughs) is only 12 weeks, I mean, that right there is just so alarming. And then if you really think about how fragmented our medical society is, nowadays when you go to a doctor, if you've got a skin complaint, you end up at a dermatologist. If you have a urinary complaint, you end up at a urologist. And the problem with that is that traditionally doctors are so busy running from room to room to room that the urologist isn't really looking at the whole medication list. Mm. So I've seen it before, since I'm a primary care doctor at heart, I've seen it before where two doc, two specialists are prescribing medications that not necessarily interact with each other, but one is causing a side effect. Amlodipine is a perfect example. So a cardiologist will give someone amlodipine and that causes leg swelling and then they end up at their primary care doctor on a diuretic and really it's all along the amlodipine was causing the leg Mm. edema you just needed a different blood pressure medicine to not cause the edema so this person ended up on two drugs when one could have worked and really of course the functional medicine model is if someone has high blood pressure they don't need a drug they need to fix the underlying cause of the high blood pressure so they don't need the drug but yeah our, our medical society is very fragmented creating disjointed care and and more money spent quite frankly. We're going mm-hmm. bankrupt. Our healthcare industry is going bankrupt. Right. And then on the personal level for the people who are being sent to all these doctors, and even though the the time with the doctor may be 12 minutes, our time in the office is sometimes 30 <sighs> minutes, an hour. Maybe Absolutely. you're sitting there for an hour before they even let you in. Absolutely. And then you sit in the room waiting for the doctor to come in. I mean, it's a lot of... Um, you know, it's a lot of time. And I know that for patients that are struggling with some kind of condition or trying to get to the root of a condition, um, it gets really frustrating Absolutely. and overwhelming to, you know, keep getting juggled around from different doctors and, and all of that. Not to mention the time off work that you weren't able to do. Mm-hmm. So you're sick, which means you definitely need money to take care of your illness. And then on top of that, you're spending a lot of time at doctor's offices and multiple specialists waiting an hour to see the doctor for 10, 12 minutes. And it's, it's disturbing where we're headed because the situation isn't necessarily getting better. I know when I was right. a kid, the wait times weren't exactly great, but looking around, the wait times have only gotten worse and mm-hmm. the doctor time has only gotten less. Very interesting. What would be maybe another difference between uh, the traditional medical approach and functional medicine? So the use of supplements is the big one. So one of the reasons why functional medicine doctors often get thrown under the bus is because we use a lot of supplements. And in the conventional world and residency and med school in general, supplements are demonized as, as a problem. And it's just a billion, billion dollar, sorry, 
billion dollar industry and you're just making expensive urine and expensive stool and stuff. And so I went into functional medicine already expecting this, but it's not until you start seeing patients taking supplements and, and, and improving their diet mm. when you start seeing benefit and you're like, well, I don't care how much the supplement costs. It worked and it got rid of the underlying cause. And if the patient has to take the supplement the rest of their life, in general, it's much better to have to take a supplement the rest of your life than to have to take a drug the rest of your life. Right. But many times in functional medicine, the supplements we use are temporary. We're trying to fix the problem. Once we fix that problem, then they can get that nutrient or whatnot from their diet. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, some of the supplements we use, we often tell people like, you can take this fish oil capsule or you can eat the fish. And many people are like, eh, I don't want to eat the fish. Then take the fish oil. Like right, you right. have to have that nutrient in your body. So a big difference is a traditional doctor is more likely to reach for the prescription pad. A functional medicine doctor is more likely to reach for the supplement, diet, lifestyle. And in what form of medicine or just humanity in general should nutrition not be a part of the, the discussion? Right. Um, it's weird to me to think that I went through med school and residency and never spoke to anyone, hardly anything about nutrition. I, I, speaking of the heartburn issue, we would talk to people about co uh, coffee consumption and maybe alcohol consumption, but actually going through their nutrition and talking about removing processed foods, removing sugars, removing gluten and dairy, things that are known to obviously fix, for many people, fix mm -hmm. heartburn, weren't even taught. You mention a few things and then you give them Prilosec and say, I'll see you in four weeks and let me know if it works. Very interesting. Yeah, I've heard different, um, you know, different numbers in terms of like the number of hours of nutrition training that you get in a medical program. One hour. One hour. <laughs> I remember it. It was one hour and it was boring. It was pointless. And we all ignored it and laughed at it. And, you know, I think about when I became interested in nutrition, you know, I had lived my whole life and not really known anything. I was probably sitting there drinking a Coke and eating cheeses while I was, <laughs> while reading, I was reading the book. And, <laughs> and you know, it was um, studying uh, cell biology and the professor of that class, his uh, kind of specialization was in cancer research. So we did a lot of looking at like, you know, what actually causes your DNA to replicate incorrectly? You know, what mm -hmm. actually causes, um, you know, certain parts of your body to stop doing the things they're supposed to be doing, right. you know, the functioning the way that they're supposed to. Um, and yeah, it started coming, you know, looking like, oh, well, it seems like all the processed foods and all the chemicals. And then you start actually looking at what some of those ingredients are and the effects that they have. They disrupt your endocrine system. They, I mean, they just is insane all of the different things you start discovering when you're looking at these different chemicals in the food. Um, but that was a big eye-opener for me. And I ended up writing my senior thesis paper about processed foods and disease. And now, you know, 10 years later, it's luckily come a lot more into the mainstream. Um, and with functional medicine being a lot more mainstream now as well, a lot of those things I was talking about in my college paper, like trans fats, <laughs> you know. way ahead of the time. Yeah, is now, uh, you know, kind of coming out. And it's really interesting that, and you're like, wow, like, how do we go our whole, how did I go my whole life without anyone ever telling me, like, why you need to eat a vegetable, why you need to drink water? You know, all of these little things that people uh, don't want to do and take for granted, 
Um, it's like we're out looking for this answer to our health, yeah. and it's so hard. You're not going to lift up every boulder to try to find it. And it's actually like, actually, it's just right, right in there front, in front of, of you. you. <laughs> um, the scary part is why has the government not gotten involved? I'm not a big fan of government and policing things because clearly they haven't done that great of a job for us already. But the government is literally the one going bankrupt from all the chronic health care conditions. Yeah. And these studies are out there. The knowledge is already out there. Why aren't they creating com commercials to save their own tails? Like our, our, our country is, is slotted to go bankrupt from the healthcare industry mm -hmm. because we can't afford it. And all along, it's right there in front of us, food. The scary part is the government is actually doing the opposite, right? They're subsidizing weed and corn and all the foods that are actually making us sicker. So there's some conflicting stuff going on in the government. This stuff should be public knowledge, and it's not. So that's right. why it's up to us to be on social media and podcasts and everything that we do to shout it from the rooftops because mm -hmm. you're changing more lives than the doctors out there are. Writing prescriptions is not making America healthier. Telling people to eat healthier, think about your stress, manage your lifestyle, that changes more lives than, than any doctor is right now. I hate to say it. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, there's, um, you know, there's so much information out there now that a lot of times it feels overwhelming just to try and make your way through it. And you yeah. get conflicting information where one person will tell you that tomatoes are good and another person will say that tomatoes are bad. Um, and almost for anything, you know, there'll be somebody that's saying yes and someone's saying no. So I know that it gets confusing it gets overwhelming for people. Um, but at the same time, I think that there's a lot of um, power that we have to just kind of see how things work for us. And, you know, I, I'm always just trying to empower people to, you know, if you are, you know, maybe reading about gluten and mm -hmm. you have this weird feeling that, oh, maybe maybe that's what it is, that mm -hmm. you would just try it and see how it works for you. Body awareness. Um, that's what we call it. Everybody's body's unique. You said in the beginning, try something. If it works, you've taught yourself the most valuable lesson that no one else can teach you, what a food does to you. Mm -hmm. And keeping things simple, as you pointed out, using one ingredient at a time, whether it's gluten, whether it's dairy. And I, I agree. To, I go to these functional medicine lectures, and they're always trying to make things way too complicated. Like, mm. oh, cooked tomatoes gets this nutrition. Raw tomatoes gets that nutrition. And, oh, this kind of tomato is bad. Like, no, just keep it simple. My, my main goal is for people to eat food, mostly plants, and not too much, right? That's a kind of a functional medicine mantra. I'm sure you've heard it before. Eat food. What, food grows. Food has a phase. Food does not come in a Twinkie wrapper. Food does not come in a box. Right. It's got to be food. And food does not have a eternal shelf life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that in and of itself should be a really clear indicator of yes. something that is not real food. If it can sit on the shelf and it doesn't have an expiration date, or the expiration Agreed. date is many years from now, yes. you know, it's a good chance that that food has been, um, you know, significantly changed. Its chemical structures have been significantly changed in order to extend the shelf life. And most of the time, that means that it no longer has those same nutritional benefits that you want to be getting from the food in the first place. If microbes don't want it, the bacteria and fungus of the world, chances are the human shouldn't be eating it either. So that is a very good point. Yeah. So the little mantra you gave, uh, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Um, can you speak a little bit to the not too much piece? You know, because I've observed that the serving sizes of food mm -hmm. is just growing and growing and growing. And even for myself, I noticed that 
when I overeat, I feel way worse. Mm -hmm. When I make the decision to, I'm going to eat this, this looks like a reasonable amount of food for me. I'm going to eat mm -hmm. that much. I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. um, what is the effect of overeating on the body? So I don't do hardly anything with calories and not too much with serving size because really if you're eating the right foods, it's almost impossible to overeat or eat too much. You never go to a salmon buffet and eat too much salmon, right? Nobody <laughs> does that. You don't eat pounds of broccoli. You just don't overdo it. You can. I mean, you can try to, but ultimately you're, as you said, you're just not going to feel well. So eating too much, usually if you're eating too much of something, it's probably a junk food. And you know it's a junk food. That's why junk food is made to be highly palatable and you can eat as much as you want and you still won't be full. So if you're eating the right nutrients, you really can't eat too much. The, the, the other thing that you can eat too much of that would be a whole food would be carbs, basically. So the potatoes of the world, sweet potatoes, those kind of things you can overindulge in and overeat. So I don't think there's really any one size fits all as far as eating too much. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at what your macronutrients that you're eating, then macronutrients means proteins, carbs, and fats. If you're looking at those and you have a fairly well-balanced kind of the, the most simple way is 30-30-30, 30% of each. If you're 30-30-30, chances are you didn't overeat too much because if you overeat potatoes, you are not going to be 30-30-30. Your carbs are going to be much higher. Right. Most people who aren't paying attention to their food intake, it's almost always primarily carbs. That's their number one. It's usually at least 50%, more likely 67 or even 80% carbs. That's really easy to overeat, and it creates this hormone roller coaster that you're stuck overeating because those carbs turn into sugar, and sugar doesn't last very long, so you end up needing more and more sugar to mm -hmm. fuel the, the, the human. And so I encourage a lot of people not fully to switch all the way to keto, but to focus on lowering carbs as much as possible. But anytime you take away carbs, one of the things people always do when they're dieting is they reduce their carbs. Oh, carbs make me fat, so I reduce my carbs. But they keep eating the same macronutrients on the other things. Well, if you just took that away, you're going to be starving. You're now hungry. Yeah. And you can only be hungry for so long before you give in. Your body's not stupid. It will make you crave food until you give in. So if you're taking away carbs, you add fat. Too many people are increasing protein right now. Protein is really popular. Too much protein. Yeah. And you can overeat protein now because there's protein snacks and protein drinks and protein everything. Yeah. And they've even added sweeteners to it. So it even tastes like a carb. But too much protein turns into sugar. So that's another fallacy that people end up in. When you reduce the carbs, you have to add the fat in. So if you're eating whole foods, vegetables, meats, nuts, seeds, you cannot overeat, especially if you're eating enough oils and fats with it. It's impossible to overeat, I right. dare you. Your, your body will actually, um, you know, between, yeah, the fat, the fiber that kind of comes in and literally fills your body up. <laughs> but then also, more importantly, sending the signals to your brain to tell you to stop eating. Absolutely. And unfortunately, those processed foods, refined grains, enriched. I mean, how mm -hmm. sneaky was it? that they would take the worst, most highly processed nutrient, you know. Devoid. Uh, yeah, nutrient devoid, yes. <laughs> um, you know, flour and call it enriched. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is just, in my opinion, that is some some sneaky food science right it's there. Marketing. And it um, works. You know, but w we've also been told that fats are bad. Yes. You know, um, and so many people fear eating too much fat and people think that fat makes you fat. <laughs> Can mm -hmm. you speak to that a little bit? Uh, I could talk for hours on the fat <laughs> makes you fat. So the the whole idea in, in the English language, fat that in our food is the same as fat on our bodies. And I did, I used to say this, but now I can actually say this, that in Russia, there's five different words for fat. 
both fat on food, fat on humans. There's literally five different words. So our problem is it makes sense that if you eat fat, you will be fat, but it's actually the exact opposite because when you look at hormones, calories in do not equal calories out. Calories in do not mean you're gonna gain weight. It's all about the types of calories that you eat. So the number one fact is that the fat on your body is triggered by insulin. Insulin is only released in the presence of carbs and sugar. And carbs include potatoes, starches, breads, whatnot. It's not just the processed sugar stuff, the flours. Um, so the carbs stimulate the insulin. The insulin makes you fat. When you eat fat, fat is the only thing that triggers your satiety center in your brain. So when you're hungry, you can eat as much carbs as you want, as much protein as you want, but the main thing that satisfies that hunger sensation is fat. So when you're only eating carbs, you're triggering a lot of insulin. The insulin mm. is directly causing you to gain weight, make fatty liver, all the terrible inflammatory things and you're still hungry. So the other thing, as you pointed out, enriched flour is actually very nutrient devoid. So we've classically looked at obese people as, oh, you're obese, you've taken in too many calories, but actually obese people are typically starving, they're malnourished, so it yeah. seems completely odd, like they have this overabundance of, of calories, but they're actually malnourished. And the idea is that in, in even in functional medicine and some of the holistic people, we've gotten lost in macronutrients. So we focused on macros, 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 proteins, carbs, and fat. That's all food is, protein, carbs, and fat. That's not true. There's micronutrients to every fruit, vegetable, everything we put in our mouth. Mm -hmm. And if you're not focusing on the micronutrients or if you're not absorbing the micronutrients, then you can actually be malnourished and simply overweight. You can kind of get a better picture of it when you look at the starving people in Africa. They're starving. They're malnourished, yet they have a pot belly on them. And so you would make, you would think, oh, they've got a pot belly, so that must mean they're overweight. No, that's the obviousness to malnourishment. When you don't have protein, bad things happen to your body. When you don't have fat or you don't have micronutrients, bad things happen to your body. Mm -hmm. So an obese person is not necessarily um, well-nourished. They're actually starving. Right. And it would also make sense that perhaps what, you know, got them into the situation of overweight and then obese was actually that being malnourished and their Absolutely. body's constantly starving. No matter how many calories they eat, their body is still craving more food, telling them to eat more food. And so unfortunately, as they um, overeat calories, undereat the actual nutrients, nutrients that their yeah. body is really craving. You just have this really, you know, clear imbalance um, that's going on. And I know that it's um, it's interesting to think that uh, the the people that manufacture the processed foods, uh, they're called food scientists. And I think that's just very telling. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a book that one of, uh, I think his name is Steve Gagné. I'm not sure if that's right, but I believe the book is called Why Americans Love Junk Food or something like that. But basically he just reveals that like, yes, as food scientists, when we're designing the potato chips and the Fritos or whatever, they're actually using specific techniques to trick the body into eating more food. Food, like mm -hmm. this um, vanishing caloric density, um, where when you eat the Frito or the potato chip or whatever, it you know vanishes in your mouth so quickly that it doesn't really signal to the brain that you've eaten anything. Oh, wow. and that's why you can actually eat like a huge bag of chips mm -hmm. and still be like, oh yeah, I could eat a piece of pizza <laughs> yeah. or whatever, because they've actually literally designed the food between removing the fiber, removing the nutrients, yeah. you know, whatever other MSG, MSG and things yeah. they've added to it. Um, you know, they're literally designing the foods to trick our bodies into overeating. And um, for me, that was a very empowering 
empowering thing to learn because now when I see those foods, I'm like, no, like you're trying to dupe me. You're trying to yeah. trick me. Um, and that's been a big, uh, you know, tool, so to speak, for me, you know, that I look at a Coca-Cola and I see it as poison. Mm -hmm. And I see those people who made it as like, you know, purposefully trying to create something that they know is going to be addictive, that they know you're going to be able to to consume ad nauseum. You're mm -hmm. never going to get like, oh, I think I've had enough Coke. Oh, right. I think I've had enough potato chips right. or whatever. Um, and so, unfortunately, the processed foods have really fed, for lack of a better term, have fed this, you know, huge problem of malnourishment and um, this kind of consistent hunger that people never can actually satisfy. And it's so addictive that it's hard for people without a clear reason to give up on it, or I'm sorry, not to give up on it, to, to quit that food and go to Whole Foods, because mm. I'm sorry, a green bean will never taste as good as a Frito. That's, I mean, green beans are good. And what's odd is your palate changes to whatever you're eating. Mm. Um, so the idea that there's kid foods out there, like, oh, what, what I hear all the time, like, what, what is my kid going to eat? What, what kid foods do you have? I was like, there's no such thing as kid food. <laughs> there's food. If the kid doesn't want to eat green beans, he's either not hungry enough or he's never even tasted a green bean mm -hmm. and his palate doesn't even know how to crave it. Right. Once you start giving kids and adults the real foods, eventually they will crave it. But in the beginning, someone has to make that conscious decision. For a child, it's usually like, well, there's no more Fritos. So you can either eat the green bean or be hungry and eventually the child will eat. Um, for an adult, it doesn't look like that because they always have the option to stop at a convenience store. We're not controlled by our parents anymore. Right. So it takes that conscious decision to say, no, I'm going to do this. But as they do it, I, I mean, my, my patients follow me long term from the people that come in eating junk food and drinking diet soda to six months, a year down the road, they're still doing well, eating healthy, feeling better. It's because they've empowered themselves with all the tools, with realizing the food industry hijacked their taste buds and realizing that it's empty calories. And then once you feel good, you don't want to let go of that. That good feeling and you know what's going to yeah. take that good feeling away so food is is definitely complicated and we've been lied to and it's time to break the silence yeah you know one of the things that you had said uh, when we first sat down today was that one of the big um, differences between uh, the mainstream medical model and functional medicine is that functional medicine believes that you can heal the body can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I know for so many people that have received a, a diagnosis or chronic disease or whatever, a lot of times the way that is kind of delivered in the mainstream is like, okay, you now have this condition. You're going to have this condition for the rest of your life and there's mm -hmm. nothing you can do about it. So what we can do is, you know, manage your symptoms with these different drugs or whatever so you can hopefully keep living your life. Um, how is maybe functional medicine different? So functional medicine is very different in the sense that we believe that almost all disease is reversible. Now, whether we know how to reverse it or not or can prove that it's reversible is, is hard to say. And there's not enough money being poured into functional medicine like there is the drug companies. So there's no good research proving that, oh, you've got RA, we can reverse that. So one of the things I'm doing in my practice is as I have patients that reverse their autoimmunity that they've been told and have been on drugs for years and they were just stuck with it and they reverse their disease and I've got lab proof that they both feel better and their labs show that it's reversed, 
that I posted on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram showing that this is possible. Mm -hmm. And just for people to see that it's possible has been empowering to the population. So I'm a believer that almost all disease is reversible. And the one thing I always hedge my bets on is cancer. I am not a big believer that cancer is reversible. That's a problem that once it's developed is its own environment. It's like its own human being by itself. And it's very difficult to eradicate cancer. So I don't do a lot of cancer treatment. I have several cancer patients, but I never promise that we can reverse their cancer. But most people that come to me with cancer, they have so many other inflammatory autoimmune problems that we've got plenty to treat. And if their body happens to kill the cancer on their own, then great. But I'm not of the type to believe that cancer is reversible. I, I would love to say it were. I haven't right. seen it. So I'm happy for someone to prove it. I'm happy for one of my patients to do it, and I'll shout it from the rooftops. Right. But um, the, the deal is better to prevent cancer, and most people don't know that preventing cancer is possible. You reduce your rates by 70% by eating a clean diet, um, moving, and not smoking. That's the, that's the most powerful tool you have. There's no mammogram. There's no colonoscopy. There's no PSA test that is any better than removing inflammatory foods, moving, decreasing your stressors, not smoking. 70% improvement in all-cause mortality by doing those things. Wow. There's no test in the world that comes anywhere close to reducing your likelihood of dying from cancer other than those things. So instead of going get your mammogram, not saying don't get your mammogram, but if you're going get your mammogram eating a bag of Doritos, you're probably doing the wrong thing. That mammogram yeah. is not going to save your life. You need to put the Doritos down. Put the Doritos down. <laughs> they taste good, though. <laughs> um. We'd like to briefly interrupt this interview to remind you that this podcast was made possible by listeners just like you. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash psychetruth, where you can watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to over 500 videos of exclusive content, including premium courses and behind-the-scenes peaks. Help us keep this information free by visiting patreon.com slash psychetruth. That's patreon.com slash p-s-y-c-h-e-t-r-u-t-h. You know, and I think that, you know, one thing that can be a little difficult is, you know, that a lot of times by the time you start observing the symptoms in yourself, mm-hmm. Whatever's going on in your body has already been going on for a really long time. Decades. Um, and especially in the case of cancer, that's not mm-hmm. something where all of a sudden your body's in perfect health. Correct. And then randomly, for literally no reason, you know, cancer takes over the body. Um, that was, And that was one of the really interesting things that I was learning about in college. I was like, wow, I thought that cancer was like an infection or yeah. something. Like something like from struck the, by lightning. Yeah, something from the outside comes into your body. But actually, like... Every single time your body is replicating its DNA and mm-hmm. making a new cell and making a new hair or a new skin mm-hmm. or a new liver cell, um, that it has all of these little cell cycle control mechanisms in there to prevent a potentially cancerous cell from being formed. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, um, I remember they were talking about um, apoptosis. Uh, where the cells will actually kill themselves, mm-hmm. like sacrifice the, your life for the health of the right. body or whatever. Um, and then there's these like certain things where they can come in and see like, oh, these things actually are preventing the body from doing this apoptosis. Mm-hmm. And that's what's allowing the cancer cells to survive mm-hmm. that very first little, you know, um, safety mechanism or yeah. whatever. 
So by the time cancer is actually taken over your body and become something that can be found in a mammogram or be found in one of the many tests, that that condition has been there for, for a, quite a long time, who knows, maybe the whole life even, um, that somewhere in the lifestyle or the diet, um, somewhere you prevented your body from doing one of these really most basic things, which is helping to always make sure your DNA is replicated correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, uh, it ends up being a lot of these different processed foods and weird food chemicals. And um, when you start talking about the chemicals in the carpet and the paint, and the, it's just so alarming, the pure volume of different chemicals that we're exposed to, that to me it seems you know, really easily, easy to understand, maybe even obvious that, yeah, eventually some of these things are going to have really terrible effects on us Mm -hmm. that we can't see because we can't see into our bodies. But how do you fight that when other doctors and physicians are saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Your cancer was caused by DNA and bad luck and family history and Mm -hmm. nothing. So we've, we've, we're really kind of fighting the medical establishment who is kind of poo-pooing, undermining, <laughs> undermining what we say every day and do. And it makes sense. You just got to sit down and think about it. All these right. chemicals that are accumulating in my body, yes, they're going to cause these things. So it, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle because people that may be considering change, they watch this podcast like, you know what, I do want to change. And then they go to their doctor and say, oh, I'm going to cut out gluten. And their doctor is like, well, that's pointless. That doesn't do anything. Well, they've just lost all their motivation. Yeah. So we're really fighting an uphill b- battle. You've been doing this for longer than I've been doing this and it's a slow movement it's kind of scary and I feel like it's partly because people are telling others that it's not real I mean I still remember I can remember where I was standing when the first person told me that they cut out gluten and it reversed the psoriasis and I remember rolling my eyes like okay whatever you say and lo and behold, I'm still friends with her, <laughs> just so you know. And, um, and now I'm, I'm one of those doctors that are telling almost everyone, eliminate gluten because you don't need it and it might reverse your disease. Wow. So we've, we've got to work on two different types of population. We have to work on the general population who's a little bit easier to convince than physicians who think they know everything and have the God complex, unfortunately. And that's part of our career. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we've had um, a couple of different times on the podcast, this concept of um, a medical mystery, like Mm -hmm. the patient comes in and they're presenting all these symptoms and they've been to a million doctors Mm -hmm. and no one can figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. No one can figure out what's wrong or what is the cause. Mm -hmm. Um, When people get to that point, I think that's often the uh, impetus for them to look outside of the mainstream Mm -hmm. or try some of these you know, things that, uh, mm-hmm. like you said, the doctor probably rolled their eyes at or yep. something. Um, but then unfortunately, there's all, you know, a much, much larger population of people who they're not at that point yet. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're uh, healthy, so to speak, or they're just not presenting symptoms. Um, but you never really know, is it just, uh, you know, a, a game of time until right. the body starts to have some kind of dysfunction. Um, so to me, um, getting into that population of people who are healthy mm-hmm. and who do feel like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me and oh, I eat processed foods and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many you know, times somebody comments on one of the YouTube videos or something, well, I'm eating that bad food right now and I'm okay. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, it doesn't mean... Just because you can be, you can survive eating Doritos or whatever, it doesn't mean they're good for you. And unfortunately, there's no way for us to really see what the internal effects are 
of these different foods or of these different well, choices. I actually disagree. That we're so that's so that last point of you can't see what's going. You can absolutely see. Most of the doctors that you see out there are not doing the advanced testing that's out there because there's no reason to do a test if you don't know what to do about it. But there's mm. so many advanced tests, and, and this is a perfect time and age to practice functional medicine because it, it's it's really easy for anyone to walk in my office and I can tell them, well, you most likely have this, this, and this. Let's do a test. And I can prove it. You don't even have to believe that I'm this crazy functional medicine doctor. You're going to see it in your test. And once you see it in your test, you can decide whether you want to do something about it or not. So in t- today's age, you can find inflammation. You can find autoimmunity. You can find yeast overgrowth. You can find bacterial overgrowth in the bowels and gut dysfunction and leaky gut. Pretty much all the things that functional medicine doctors have been talking about for years and decades now there's actual scientific lab proof of it. Wow. And there's even things that are common knowledge of what to do about it and how to fix it. So the, the idea that people can eat however they want to and feel fine, the truth is that most of them don't realize that they don't feel fine. And when you're talking mm. about, oh, this healthy population that may not realize they're sick, you're talking about me. Like when I started this whole process, I had my own issues that I didn't realize was chronic inflammation and gluten and dairy. Uh, I usually tell people, I won't tell them my whole story, but my, my usual story is the IBM. Yes, I had terrible like gut rot. It was I couldn't predict what food was going to do to me. My right shoulder hurt for eight years, and I had chronic nasal allergies every day. I don't have any of those problems anymore. But all I I didn't realize that it had to do with the massive amounts of diet coke I was drinking, the processed foods I was eating, the immense amount of stress that med school and residency put on me, and my body was falling apart. Well, as I started getting into functional medicine myself. All of a sudden, my allergies are gone. Like, I don't need Flonase anymore. I don't need my sinus rinse anymore. And I've never needed it ever since. My wow. right, right shoulder pain completely gone. My IBS, that's just, that's been fixed for years. So most people out there, and I really think most people on the planet right now think they have a problem because their mom or dad had a problem. Oh, my knee hurts. Oh, my, my mom had knee problems. So it's probably that. No, there's probably something that you were eating or you were exposed to that's creating this chronic inflammation. And yes, wow. it might be a weak link for you and your family, but just because it's in your family doesn't mean you have to live by it. We've proven time and time again that your genetics are not your destiny. You can separate twins at birth. Well, we don't separate twins at birth, but twins that have been separated at birth, they've studied them and shown that they can have two totally different triggers based on their environmental factors. So they're identical genetically. Those are the perfect population to study. Environment matters. And the environment that you put in your mouth matters the most. Wow. And that's I'm and I'm glad you said that. I think you're right. There's a lot of um, of people out there who are like probably do yeah believe I'm healthy. I'm mostly healthy. Um, oh yeah, but I do get you know chronic headaches every couple of exactly. weeks. Or oh well, I do have this thing, or I have a bad back. Exactly. I'm healthy, but I have a, I've got a real bad back. Right. You know, so it's it's kind of interesting how our idea of being healthy has kind of come to include these like certain amounts of pain and discomfort and things mm-hmm. and like, oh yeah, but I have really, really bad heartburn, but that's mm-hmm. normal. Or diabetes. Uh, you know how many um, diabetics I've seen as a family medicine doctor where you ask them if they're healthy? Like, yeah, I'm perfectly healthy. Well, uh, why are you taking metformin or why are you taking glipizide? Those are diabetic medications. Oh, yeah, we'll have diabetes. Well, that is not healthy. Diabetes is the number one cause of heart attacks, strokes, blindness, kidney disease. Like, you are not healthy. So this idea that people have diseases, quote, unquote, that they don't even realize is a chronic disease and melting their body, they don't even identify it. And then in conventional medicine, we wait for people's markers to get so bad before we actually do anything. So when I was going through residency, one of the big um, concerns was A1C is a really easy blood test. It's really cheap. And it's basically a 90-day blood sugar test. And it tells you if you're diabetic or not. 
Well, when I was going through residency, they were basically telling us, you know what, there's no utility in checking the A1C unless someone's diabetic, and then you can check it. So all this time from 5.4 being normal to 6.5 being diabetic, we're not supposed to check them. We're not supposed to say, hey, your number's increasing. You should probably cut sugar out of your diet. And the yeah. reason why is because when they do those studies, they're just testing A1C. They're not actually implementing any nutritional changes. The only thing they're doing is, oh, if we add drugs earlier because we detected it earlier, are we making a difference? And the answer is no, you don't make a difference with drugs. But if you see someone's A1C creeping up and you're like, hey, you're eating too much sugar, I'm like, okay, I'm willing to change. And they reverse that number back down. Guess what? You've just saved them from ever going to diabetes. Most general practitioners don't even realize that diabetes is reversible. And that is one of the easiest things that I can reverse in my practice. Practice. I don't have, uh, I don't think I have any diabetics in my practice right now. Um, they they can come diabetic, but they always reverse it. It's one of the easiest things wow. to reverse. One of my professors, and I won't say his name on camera, but one of my professors back at resident my residency program did a video, and I was really happy. He did a video on diabetes, and I watched the whole thing. It was like five or six minutes long, and he must have said that diabetes is not reversible. We can manage it, and the way to do it is with exercise, and that is completely false. You reverse diabetes in the kitchen and with your food, and I don't care if you ever exercise. You can reverse diabetes without ever going for a walk, without ever stepping on a treadmill or anything. Wow. America has put too much emphasis on exercise. Most of the time when patients come to see us, we tell them to stop exercising. Your body can't even handle exercise. You're so malnourished that exercise is stressful to your body. Stop exercising. Let's give your body the nutrition it needs. Get it moving. Get its own energy process moving in the sense of energy processes moving. And then naturally, as the human feels better, then they naturally want to do more. So wow. this whole idea that exercise is how to be healthy is the wrong thing. You can watch it in Michelle Obama campaign when she first started in the White House, she was all about, I don't remember the exacts, but I remember something about it was all about food and fixing food in the schools and all this. But if you watched as their eight years in the White House, her program became more and more about exercise and less and less about food. And the conspiracy theorist inside me says that the food industry had something to do with that. I don't have any proof in it, but it's interesting. If you watch from the first year to the eighth year, her message had changed. Wow. And I definitely feel... Um, that there's also this, uh, you know, maybe that exercise is the, um, I don't know, like the way to like balance your otherwise terrible diet. Like, <laughs> like you the, can't outrun your fork. Yeah, you yeah, you know, like to an extent, because everyone's eating so badly, and because there's a lot of there's a lot of money, there's billions oh, of dollars in in this way that people are eating so badly. Um, you know that yeah there's a lot of uh there's a lot more reason to you know just have people exercise oh don't mm -hmm. worry about your diet if you mm -hmm. exercise it's okay um and obviously exercise and moving the body is important too but Absolutely. not in not as uh instead of eating mm -hmm. right and all of these different things um that is really interesting and i did notice that about you know the, that I was like, why wasn't it school lunches anymore? Mm -hmm. Like that whole piece kind of just dropped out. Um, and that's always been a big thing for me. That seems like one of the most important things in the world, it kids is. having healthy school lunches. Um, and I think about the food that I ate when I was in school. And I'm sure that it's not gotten better. And I was um, in South Louisiana. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in Austin. Okay, so your food was probably better than most of the nation. But I can't imagine it was good either. Our whole school system's um, rotten. Yeah. And then even when you do try to make healthier foods with those highly processed ingredients, yeah. 
it's it you know yeah they don't taste good or it's just it's still not healthy you Mm -hmm. know and so when you think about like what what are the big gigantic bags of flour that they have down there that they're making the rolls and the pizza crust and the hamburger buns it's all that cheap enriched flour Mm -hmm. um where if we just did one simple thing which was like using a less processed flour or even using mm-hmm. a gluten-free flour mm-hmm. in these in in school lunches or something like that that you'd probably see radical changes um especially when you look at the you know especially among kids kind of the one of the big things is the hyperactivity Absolutely. and how well do they listen how well do they you know uh handle uh being taught having to sit in, in a chair all day long, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then so much of that, I think, is highly impacted from the sugar, from the enriched carbs, and even the parents that are trying to limit the sugar intake of their kids are not realizing that that enriched flour that's in almost everything they're eating is having a lot of the same effects as the candy bar or whatnot. Yeah. Um, Our kids are in trouble, and they're only getting sicker. There's more diabetics, more ADD. The kids are getting sicker, more kid cancer. Yeah. And then even with uh, type 2 diabetes, um, I I could be wrong about this, but I feel like I read back doing some research on diabetes because I was thinking like, wow, it is becoming increasingly common. Mm -hmm. But they said that the reason they called it type 2 was because children were getting it. And originally they were going to call it adult onset diabetes. Mm -hmm. But then because so many children were developing it, they were like, oh, well, we got to call it something else. And then they, that's why they ended up calling it type Mm two. And that was many years ago. And now I know there's even more kids, um, you know, with, that already have diabetes or they're on their way towards that or something. And it's fully reversible. Type two diabetes is fully reversible. Wow. I don't know how many times I have to say that before I stop getting comments on YouTube and Facebook. Like, really? You meant type 2? Like, yes. I said type 2 diabetes is fully reversible. Very interesting. Even type 1. So I'm going to be careful what I say here. But type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition where your body destroys your pancreatic cells. We can test for that antibody, and if you can catch it early enough, you can prevent someone from entering type 1 diabetes. Wow. So I have two, I had a third patient who had, um, she moved away, um, who has late onset autoimmune diabetes type 1. So typically the juvenile diabetes was the autoimmune diabetes, but now we have these late onset diabetics that are that are happening. And the idea is that they've had these autoimmune um, markers for a long time and their pancreas has just slowly whittled away and slowly died. Well, what you can see is you can see their blood sugar rising, but their insulin is not. And that's the opposite of type 2. Type 2 insulin rises and blood sugar rises. So when you see that, if you're with a functional medicine doctor, they'll die further, find out it's an autoimmune diabetes. And if you can reverse the autoimmune diabetes quick enough, then they will have the pancreas the rest of their life and they will never need insulin. Wow. But the difference, so I said before, most disease is reversible. The immune system is really good at what it does. If it wants to destroy your pancreas and it completes its job, you are not getting that back. So the same thing with rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis, the disease process is reversible with the functional medicine model. But if you destroy a joint, it is destroyed. You cannot bring that joint back to life. Now, there are things in functional medicine that we can do to regenerate the joint, bring it somewhat back to life. But after your immune system has destroyed something, depending on the organ that is destroyed, it may not come back. Like your liver, your liver is pretty tough. It can take a beating. I'm sure you've seen chronic alcoholics for decades and they're still alive. So 
the liver can take a beating. So like an autoimmune liver issue, that they, it can destroy a lot of the liver, but the liver's so tough that as long as you reverse the autoimmune issue, usually the liver comes right back. Same wow. thing with the brain with multiple sclerosis. Terry Walls, she's a physician. She's a neurologist. She's a perfect example. She was bedbound in a hospital bed waiting to die, and she ultimately reversed her multiple sclerosis. Now she's up and walking the planet preaching and teaching functional medicine. Wow. She's a living testimony that multiple sclerosis is reversible. Your doctor hasn't told you that, but it's reversible. You just got to find the answer. Wow. Um, when you had first come in today, I asked, you know, what's one of the most common things that you see in your practice? And you mentioned autoimmune Mm -hmm. um, issues. Can you speak a little bit more to that and maybe some um, example conditions that actually have a root in autoimmunity that maybe people don't realize? (laughs) (laughs) So my job's fairly simple in this department because autoimmunity all begins in the same place and the cause is almost always the same. And that's going to sound a little bit like a fallacy to most conventional doctors, but autoimmunity all autoimmunity, every one of them develops in the bowels and it's called leaky gut. And if you haven't heard leaky gut yet, it's time to start searching because ultimately if you have autoimmune disease, you have leaky gut. If you can seal your leaky gut, you will no longer have an autoimmune condition. That's what functional medicine believes. That's what we do. And we keep doing it until the autoimmune condition is reversed. And so as far as types of autoimmunity, I've seen the full gamut. I've seen a lot of stuff now. I've been doing this for a good four years, three, four years. And so I've seen um, uh, polyneuropathy. So I had a lady with Guillain-Barre who couldn't feel her feet and was on high-dose steroids. And she's still on a baby amount of steroids, but she has no neuropathy in her feet. She can walk and talk and do all that stuff. And she's on a baby dose of steroid trying to get off it. Um, I've seen tons of Hashimoto's. So Hashimoto's is the most common thing I see. Hashimoto's is the autoimmune thyroid disorder. Mm -hmm. So we've reversed plenty of those. There's plenty of Facebook posts about my Hashimoto's patients that have reversed it. Rheumatoid arthritis is a stubborn one, but reversible. Um, Psoriasis is reversible. That can be a stubborn one too. Um, So any gamut of autoimmune disorder basically comes from the gut and it is reversible. So this whole idea of leaky gut, I could talk an hour on, but I've gotten it down simplified pretty easily. So the whole idea is I like to think of it as your skin. Your skin is a barrier and nothing is supposed to get inside. So if you jump in a swimming pool, you do not become swimming pool, right? Because you have a barrier. That barrier prevents your water from leaking out and from swimming pool from coming in and us becoming waterlogged. So that barrier is what keeps us alive. In your intestines, this is kind of weird to think about, but when you eat food, food does not enter your body. Food passes through your body. So you eat an apple, and when you're eating that apple and you're swallowing it, that apple is going through a tunnel and your mouth mouth is perfectly connected to your anus. That apple never enters your body. It passes through your body. As it's passing through your body, your body is choosing which components it wants to absorb, and everything else stays out and turns into poop. Well, that's if your barrier works perfectly. If your barrier does not work, then things that you don't want to leak in are leaking in inappropriately. And once something actually enters your body, you now have to attack it. The only way you can prevent something from killing you once it enters your body is you kill it. So you can take a paperclip and you can rub a paperclip all along your skin and it's going to be perfectly fine. You're not going to have any inflammation, any issues. But the second you jab that paperclip into your skin, you now have an inflammatory component. Paperclips are not dangerous. Apples are not dangerous. But an apple that leaks through the cracks and enters your body now must be destroyed. So once this thing leaks across the gap, your body has to destroy it. And the way your body identifies something as foreign is it studies its 3D molecular shape. 
once it studies that shape, it learns it, and then it tells other guys, like, hey, look for this shape all around the body, go kill it. Well, it just so happens that food, bacteria, fungus, whatever is in your bowels that's leaking through the crack, when it leaks through that molecular structure, looks just like your thyroid, it looks just like your joint or just like your brain. And so based on whatever has leaked across the junction, your immune system has identified as foreign, your immune system is attacking that thing, and your joints are collateral damage. Now you have rheumatoid arthritis. Wow. Your brain is collateral damage. Now you have multiple sclerosis. So the problem is not in your brain. The problem is not in your joint. The problem is in your gut and crap is leaking, literally crap is leaking through your gaps. And that is what's causing your autoimmune condition. So everything you need to do is revolved around fixing your leaky gut. And for everyone, it's different, but it always involves a few things. Got to remove gluten, got to remove dairy. Those are the two big inflammatory triggers, and you've got to rebalance your microbiome. We haven't talked much about the microbiome, but the bacteria, the fungus, the viruses, all in your bowels, they need to be rebalanced. And eating all these processed foods, eating all the carbs and sugar, it throws off your balance. And you've mm -hmm. been doing it for decades, and it will take a while to reverse, but you can do it. Interesting. That was so, like, a long spill. That I was, and that was a <laughs> excellent. No, that was an excellent um, explanation of leaky gut. Um, so, you know, getting into that concept of the microbiome, that would be like taking probiotics to help replenish those good bacteria in the gut? That's a start. The problem with probiotics and the reason why people lose faith in it is because probiotics can't stick when something else is overgrowing. So the metaphor here, I really like metaphors, if you can't tell. So the metaphor here is if you go into a neighborhood and there's a nice diversity there, um, then, then that's a, a, a well-balanced neighborhood, right? But if you go into a neighborhood and there's all purple people and you're like, oh, I don't want all purple people. We want to get some of those purple people out. Well, if you just put green people on the streets, they're not exactly living in the house. So it looks diverse, but that's not diverse. So the second you stop taking the probiotics, the green people leave. So in order to rebalance the microbiome, you not only have to take the, the probiotics, but you have to get you have to evict the bad guys out. And so that many times takes supplements like oregano, berberine, all the things that are known to disrupt gut microbiomes. Um, yeast overgrowth is probably the most common thing we see, and that's because we eat so many carbs and sugar. Um, and so probiotics are needed, and by adding probiotics, they can start starve out the bad guys because if the probiotics are eating the good stuff, then the bad stuff can't survive. Mm -hmm. The other thing is clean nutrition. If you're not eating the right foods, then the good guys can't grow. The bad guys are thriving because you're eating bad stuff. So you start eating good stuff and some of the bad guys die off. But just because you're eating clean food doesn't mean those microbes are gone. So yes, yeast and, and fungus, they love carbs and sugar, but they can also operate off of protein and fats. They don't. It's kind of their secondary fuel source. Right. So just switching your nutrition doesn't always make the microbiome better. So yeah, someone can reduce their symptoms of autoimmunity by just eliminating gluten and dairy, but they won't fully reverse it unless they can officially really disrupt that microbiome, rebuild it, seal their leaky gut. Wow. And that takes so a year. Okay. <laughs> and then can you just talk a little bit about like what that process looks like working with a patient to, to heal leaky gut? So it's a, it's an, it's a long process, um, but there's usually kind of a stepwise fashion. So if anyone were to start an autoimmune protocol diet, this AIP diet, it, it looks very similar for most people. But in my practice, because we're supervising them and watching them, we're adding supplements, we're making it faster. But in general, almost everyone should start with an elimination diet. And that's easy to Google. Look up elimination diet, do an elimination diet for three weeks, and then add foods back in. So an elimination diet is that bad. It sounds like an elimination diet. It's terrible. It's 
it's not fun, but you need to do it. You eliminate all the food triggers that are really known to humans to be autoimmune triggers or inflammatory triggers. And then you add one food back at a time. And when you add that one food back in, you give it a few days to see if you trigger. If you trigger, that food is toast. You do not eat that food. I don't care how healthy, how nutritious that food is. It's bad for you. I don't care if it's spinach. I don't care if it's eggs. I don't care if it's sausage. I don't care what you believe is awesome for you. If you react, that food is gone. If you add that food back in, you're just propagating the leaky gut. Anything that propagates the leaky gut will prevent you from getting better. Mm -hmm. So number one is the elimination diet and watch what foods you can add back in. As you add foods back in, you need to be completely gluten and dairy free. Those are the two bare minimum. You can't go any lower than that. If you want to do full AIP, autoimmune protocol, that's easy to Google. You can look up what foods are included in that. It gets a little weird, but you can do that. If you're doing that and taking probiotics um, and glutamine, glutamine is another big product. Glutamine is the amino acid that feeds intestinal cells. So if you're asking intestinal cells to fix their barrier, well, one way is to feed them the nutrients they need, and glutamine is one of those things. Um, And then, of course, lots of fiber. So fiber feed good bacteria. Bad bacteria don't thrive off of fiber. So if you have lots of good fiber, the fiber in general, sorry, not good fiber. If you have lots of fiber that's feeding the good bacteria, those good bacteria make good things, and those good things actually kill bad things. So uh, acetic acid and butyric acid are two things that are made by good bacteria, quote unquote. So you feed good bacteria acetic acid or fiber, and they make acetic acid. Acetic acid kills yeast. So by eating the right foods, plenty of fiber, you can actually kill off some of those bad microbes that you wanted to get rid of. Wow. So probiotics, and there's a lot of talk about probiotics and what kinds and all that. The Keep it simple, right? The, the main things people need to look for is multiple strains. So not just one strain. Don't believe any marketing that's on a label. It's not one strain fits all. You've got tons of microbes in your bowels. One probiotic is not going to do it. So I usually say try to find one with at least eight strains, and you're looking for one for up to 25 billion, and you want to get a good quality because dead bacteria will not help you. They do nothing. You mm-hmm. need live bacteria. If you're not sure if you have a good quality or not, you can buy a glass of milk because you should not have milk in your fridge. You can buy a glass of milk. You can set it on the counter. You can dump your probiotic in it, and you can let it sit for three or four days. If it makes yogurt, it is a good probiotic. If it does not make yogurt, it's probably not a good probiotic. Now, it's got to have lactobacillus, right? Because milk is lactose. So if you're, if it's not that, then it may not work. But probiotics, glutamine, uh, elimination diet, no gluten dairy, um, that's the basics that will fix the majority of people out there that are fairly mild. The sicker people, as you mentioned, the medical mysteries, so to speak, anytime I hear someone say medical mystery, that just means autoimmunity. Conventional medicine is good at a couple things. They are really good at treating life-threatening problems. If you are dying, you need to be in a hospital, not in my office. I have no functional medicine is going to fix your chopped-off arm, right? So their conventional medicine is good as emergency situations. They're also really good at diagnosing conventional medical things. So if they can't figure out the problem, it's almost always autoimmune because your immune system can do anything. And if it's not a cancer, if it's not a tumor, if it's not a medical problem that conventional medicine can't see with one of their CAT scans or ultrasounds or some sort of test, then it's almost always autoimmune. So the medical mysteries are always autoimmune. It's just what do you call them? But ultimately in my practice, I don't care what we call them because their root problem is leaky gut. Mm-hmm. You fix the leaky gut and the unknown mystery illness goes away over time. Everyone always wants a name and it gives them some validity to have a name. And with social groups and Facebook groups out there, they can go on the scleroderma forum, forum or the, the ITP forum and have other people like them to, to join up with. But basically, it's always leaky gut, fixing leaky gut. And then you mentioned um, oregano 
and berberine? So we or? use a combination product, and you can Google it. It's called Biocidin, B-I-O-C-I-D-I-N. And um, don't buy it all because I need it for my practice too. But the, <laughs> So the Biocidin is a combination of ingredients, and we've used many things. We, my whole team, has used many things over time to disrupt the microbiome. And what we've ended up in is basically using Biocidin because it's the combination. So instead of just using oregano or just grapeseed extract, we found that using the combination of it all works really well. Uh-huh. But what people need to know is if you're going to disrupt your microbiome, you are going to get worse. You need to know that. If you're killing off bad bacteria and bad fungus, they may be bad on a daily basis, but once you start disrupting them and killing them, they get very unhappy. And you always get worse if you truly disrupt your microbiome, especially if you do it quickly. So biocidin is a usual product we use. So you can look up the ingredients and get any of those ingredients by themselves. But I think I've mentioned a few of them. So bilberry, um, berberine, uh, grapeseed extract, oregano oil, um, uva ursi, caprylic acid. It's kind of a combination of stuff. Wow. And so your symptoms will tend to get worse before you get better. When you start killing, yes. So in the beginning, when we work with our autoimmune patients, it's always nutrition, elimination diet. We're trying to get them better because they need to get better in order to have room to get worse when we start disrupting the microbiome. So you can make people much better just with doing the healing and repair stuff. But if you truly want to reverse the disease, then you have to get those bad guys out of there because those bad guys are what's keeping the gap open. They're keeping your leakiness, your leaky gut open. Mm -hmm. So until that leakiness is completely sealed, you have an autoimmune condition. The podcast you are listening to was brought to you by wellnessplus.tv, a subscription service empowering you with everything you need to take control of your health and happiness. Sign up for your free trial today to watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to our extensive library, including hundreds of follow-along yoga and fitness courses, massage therapy tutorials, weight loss information, guided meditations, educational health videos, and so much more. Feel better, look better, and live better today by visiting wellnessplus.tv. Yeah, and I've had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people that, you know, they'll they'll start the natural route, they'll start mm-hmm. the supplement or something, and they're like, oh, I got way worse, I stopped. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to you know, yeah, you, you're going to get worse before you get better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can think about those like angry, you know, microbes and everything down there. Like they're not just going to be like, oh, all right, see ya. Yeah, no big deal. Oh, oh yeah, okay, all right, we're out of here. They're not. They're going to go out with a fight, yep. you know, um, especially, you know, people doing like detoxes and mm-hmm. things like this. And you'll typically have pretty negative reactions, especially mm-hmm. if you are doing a big detox, you mm-hmm. know, like you've completely changed your diet and you're taking some kind of like really strong detoxification Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and they'll get really discouraged at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, so trying to, uh, help them understand, you know, why the symptoms appear to get worse when you first start the treatment or whatever, um, I think is really important. And so detox is, is interesting because detox is kind of a buzzword right now and everybody's doing it, everybody's selling it and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. detox is extremely important and we use the word detox very loosely, right? So we were born with a methylation cycle, a detox cycle, not because Monsanto made chemicals. We were born with a detox um, pathway because our own body makes 
toxins that we have to get rid of, right? The bacteria make toxins, mold make toxins, fungus make toxins, so all kinds of toxins that use this detox pathway. What maybe many people don't understand is they understand that the liver is the detox organ. That's kind of common knowledge. But what most people don't realize is the liver does not have an exhaust pipe, right? There's no exhaust pipe coming out of your back or your chest that says, oh, this is the liver's exhaust. So anytime the liver detoxifies something, it has to get it out of your body. And there's only a few ways to get things out of your body. You pee, you poop, you sweat, you can salivate a lot if you want to. Um, so there's ways to get things out of your body, but ultimately your liver is gonna take a toxin, quote unquote, and I use that word very loosely, whether it's bacterial, Monsanto, whatnot, and it's got to mobilize that thing or make it inert, and then it's gotta get it out of your body. It does that through a couple of different ways. One, it can make it water soluble. If it makes it water soluble, it puts it back in the bloodstream and it's gonna circulate the body until it lands in the kidneys and then the kidneys have to eliminate it. Well, if your kidneys aren't doing a good job or if you have leaky kidneys, believe it or not, leaky kidneys is a thing. If you got leaky gut, you got leaky kidneys. Um, and so if your kidneys can't appropriately eliminate the toxin, then the toxin goes around again and now you've got to deal with it again. It's circulating the system, you feel worse. Wow. Um, and then if it's fat soluble, the liver has to then put it in the bile. Well, when the liver dumps the, the now detox toxin into the bowel, that are into the bile, that bile enters the bowels. Well, believe it or not, there are bacteria in your bowels that regenerate toxins, that undo the detoxification process and put it right back into your body because your gut is designed to absorb stuff, right? So right. if a bacteria reactivates a toxin, it re-enters the body and then your liver has to detoxify it again. So many times if you're doing poorly on a detox, it may be because your gut is not functional enough to handle the detoxification process. Wow. Another added component to this is that the, the, the main detox pathway can be simplified into phase one and phase two. Most of the American diet is designed to ramp up the phase one pathway. The phase one pathway actually takes a toxin and makes it highly toxic. Phase two is the one that makes it inert. So in order for the body to detoxify something, it actually has to activate it in order to deactivate it. It seems like a weird issue, but that's how we work. So whenever you're ramping up your detox pathways, if you don't have enough phase two support, you actually make a lot of phase one reactants and those are actually more toxic than the regular toxin themselves, wow. especially if you're recycling them. And a lot of phase two relies on the gut function as well. So it's a complicated process. So many times, or not many times, every time in our practice, we don't detoxify people in the beginning. We heal their gut, we decrease their inflammation, we fix the microbiome as much as we can before we start removing toxins. And most of the time, if you do that first, the detox pathways or um, detox kits and stuff don't go nearly as bad. Interesting. Um, really fascinating, too, to think that, you know, because um, I think a lot of times we, you know, our brain, our brain wants to simplify things, yes. you know, so it's like detoxification and yes. our liver does the detoxifying, um, but having you explain it so clearly to understand that like, you know, all, all of your other organ function is just as important here too. And Absolutely. especially when you get to like your kidneys and your, mm -hmm. you know, actual GI tract that's going to help usher most of these things out. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, so much of our, um, I kind of feel like the mainstream approach and just the way that our brain wants to, to oversimplify things is kind of putting things in uh, little compartments, yeah. you know, like, oh, well, I have a healthy liver, so I should be able to detoxify right. without necessarily, you know, pulling in that, well, all of these different organs work in concert with one another to mm -hmm. actually achieve these different goals um, and survival, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. Um, so that once you're actually 
helping your body to function, you're not going to be able to go through and say like, oh, well, I know that my liver is healthy, but even though I know my digestion isn't quite right, you Mm -hmm. know, um, and I think that's a big piece of the functional medicine, um, puzzle, so to speak, is understanding that everything works together. And so this whole idea of like taking things in isolation, um, especially when they do scientific studies and stuff like that, like the whole thing is about isolation. And they're trying to like, okay, let's limit the confounding factors as much as possible so that we can just look at how oregano oil functions in the Mm -hmm. body or how this or whatever. When realistically, in the body, nothing's ever in isolation. No, no, You know, we're never just eating gluten or just having this or just having this vitamin. Um, So in a way, to me, the whole uh, kind of approach to, you know, studying different medications or studying different supplements even, um, or even studying things like how does sleep affect the body? How does exercise affect the body? More often than not, they're doing it in isolation and they're Mm -hmm. trying to take all these other factors out. Um, And then what you get in the end in the results of this study or whatever it is, is really not realistic because no one's actually living their life that way. It's not real. Yeah. And so I think there's... uh, you know, at the risk of of making it feel more overwhelming, you know, if you can kind of stop isolating and trying to, you know, treat the body like a little machine and you could just take out the liver and fix the mm-hmm. liver and it's going to fix everything, you kind of see everything is working together and everything depends on the function of the other organ systems in order to do the job that it's supposed to do. Yeah, and we're getting closer to that. So um, there's this board that that heads over all research. It's called the IRB, and every state and every hospital has their own IRB kind of thing. And the IRB um, board will not approve a study unless it meets their criteria. So Dr. Bredesen, I don't know if you knew that Alzheimer's and dementia is reversible, but Dr. Bredesen is proving that Alzheimer's and dementia is reversible. And he's having trouble getting through these research boards because he doesn't want to just fix one problem and say that's going to make it go away. His metaphor is you have a roof with 36 leaks. If you just patch one of them, you still have 35 leaks. It's not going to work. So it took him an immense amount of trouble and difficulty to get a study approved with fixing all 36 leaks to show that something was approved or uh, something could be improved by doing this because the IRB is not used to looking at that kind of stuff. They're used to seeing, oh, you have heartburn. Here's Nexium. Did it work? Did it not work? Pretty clear cut. That's not what functional medicine is. That's never what it'll be. And no one person is going to respond to the same regimen. So what us functional medicine doctors are trying to do is trying to find like common threads that we can find in people and say, okay, well, we're going to do the elimination diet and these probiotics and this glutamine and see if those people at least get better to prove to the masses that this stuff does work. Mm -hmm. That's not ultimately what we do because what we do is so much more personalized than that based on lab data. But until the IRBs and other boards and conventional doctors get on board with looking at multifactorial studies, we're not going to make any progress. Very interesting. And it's coming around. But it's very slow. Right. What, um, I mean, could you speak to maybe why it, you know, because if our overall goal is getting people healthy, why does it kind of feel like we're fighting an uphill battle, you know, for something just to take that one example of like multifactorial studies where we're going to look at how these different things done together affect the body, affect this certain symptom or something? The sad part is it's, it's basically belief. They don't believe at all that this is possible. Because if you ever had a loved one that was suffering from an autoimmune condition, especially one of the serious ones, like let's take multiple sclerosis, you can't walk 
you have multiple sclerosis. That person, that loved one is willing to do anything to help that person get somewhat of a life back, much less their whole life back where they can speak on stage like Terry Walls, willing to do anything. These IRB boards, these conventional doctors are kind of sitting on a high horse, not believing that this is possible, but they're also not the ones suffering. So until they're the ones suffering or until they see this actually happen in real life, it's not going to change anything because they just don't believe it's going to work. So right. if you don't believe something is going to work, no, I wouldn't let you, I wouldn't let you spend a thousand dollars on supplements and IV infusion and all this if I knew it wasn't going to work. That's a waste of money. Someone's just trying to, to sell a used car to you. So I, that's the issue is they actually just do not believe that this is possible. The sad part is that now there's so many people out there, Terry Walls, there's all kinds of people that have reversed their disease. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. many of them have discovered it because they themselves suffered and then they discovered it. I'm one of the few lucky ones that didn't have to suffer. I mean, I have my own issues, but I don't consider IBS, shoulder pain, and allergies a true suffering condition. But luckily, I discovered this stuff before, and I didn't need to suffer. But there's so many people out there suffering every day, and their doctors are still telling them that, well, that's the best we can do. Yeah. And so anyway, that was a lot longer answer than no, you asked. Uh, no, and thank you for saying that. And I think that you know, for the people who, you know, wh whichever boat you're in, one of these medical mysteries, you know, many years of frustration um, looking for answers or in that group of people who are quote unquote healthy, mm -hmm. but maybe have, you know, these different random symptoms that they've just accepted or something they have. Oh, it's genetic. So that's right. that or whatever. Um, that it's, uh, it, I don't know. It's a, it's a very conflicting thing, you know, to look at these two different things. And most of us, you know, we trust our doctor. Yeah. We just trust our doctor. And a lot of the people I know have been seeing the same, you know, uh, general practitioner for, for decades, mm -hmm. for their whole lives. Their friend, their family member. Um, one of the, uh, one of the analogies I like is, um, you know, when we, uh, let's say we get in a car wreck or something's going on, something's weird with the car or whatever, you know, we'll take it to a shop, we'll get a quote. More often than not, you're going to take it to another shop and get another quote, another yeah. perspective. And I know people who'll take it to four or five different shops until mm -hmm. they figure out, oh, okay, all right, well, I think this is the real problem. The I think this is, this is the guy who's, who's, who's actually being the most honest with me. Um, and yet with our health, we trust one person. And you know, just this one concept of like getting a second opinion, mm -hmm. um, feels really foreign and feels really scary. Um, so, you know, I just want people to, um, to know that it's, it's perfectly natural, I think, to feel that fear, you know, we should be able to trust our doctor. And yeah. most doctors are really, you know, they're incredible people who really want to help. Um, it's just unfortunate that in a lot of cases, it sounds like you know, receiving one hour of nutrition in their entire medical schooling, you know, a lot of them, they just don't know. Yep. Um, but for the patients that are out there that are feeling frustrated with what they've been given, like we should know that you can always go and get another opinion. Yep. Um, and certainly in the age of the internet and everything, mm -hmm. you can find so much just with a little <laughs> typing around and looking. Yep. Um, and I think there is a big awakening for people and kind of embracing that there's another approach to our health and that we don't have to just live with this condition and manage our symptoms our whole lives. Um, 
If there was any one thing I could say and say again is that almost all disease is reversible. You just have to find the answer. Nature has an incredible ability to heal, more powerful than anyone can understand. When given the right tools, your body can heal most things. You just got to find the right tools. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Thanks for having me. definitely excited to have you back on again and maybe delve into some of these issues in a little bit more detail. Um, I want to thank all of you for tuning into the podcast today and sharing your time with us. I hope that you are feeling empowered and enlightened. If you want to learn more about Dr. Philip Oob, you can visit oobmedical.com. I want to thank you all so much for being here, and I hope you'll join us on the program again soon. The Wellness Plus Podcast. Copyright 2018. Target Public Media, LLC. All rights reserved.